The music world moves fast. Want to stay up to date on the latest albums and get in-depth examinations with the artists? Check out Consequence of Sound, the podcast. Bite-sized album reviews for the music fan on the go who wants to stay in the know and much more. Subscribe to the series on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider and let the writers of Consequence of Sound steer you right. Check it out at consequenceofsound.net slash podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to State of the Empire, a Star Wars speculation podcast where we look for news in Alderaan places. Hi, I'm Cap. Hey, I'm Doug. Hey, I'm Matt. And this episode, well, we've got some big news about episode nine and some animated series news that we didn't see coming a parsec away. You're usually pretty good at that. Uh, usually, yeah. but, but not this time. Not this time <laughs> at all. So we'll be diving into that almost right away. And then also we're going to be discussing some further adventures into the wild, weird world of Indiana Jones's scripts that were never turned into films. Half correct. <laughs> Half correct? <laughs> because nothing goes to waste. That's true. Nothing goes to waste in the Lucasfilm empire, as we learn time and time again. This will be a good lesson on how nothing goes to waste this time. You'll okay. see. Okay. Let's get started. Lucasfilm has just announced that uh, all the casting information and some of the production team information for episode 9, which starts filming August 1st. The people you'd expect to return are returning Daisy Ridley, Adam Driver, John Boyega, Oscar Isaac, Juna Sutamo, who's Chewie, Anthony Daniels, Doomhall Gleason, and uh, Kelly Marie Tran. And, and they're not the only returning people to Star Wars. There's also, actually, surprisingly, Laputa Nyong'o, I guess we're going to see. Yeah, finally, we get some answers. Yeah, if, if this, if Maz Kanata, like, I I wrote off Maz Kanata. I yeah, thought, I did too, yeah. I just want to see Luke's Force Ghost being like, where the hell did you get that lightsaber? It's a story for another time. No, I want that story now. <laughs> like, I've waited for all this time. You haven't said it in a comic book. You haven't said it in a damn, in a damn short cartoon. I want it in the movie, and I need to hear it. I remember, uh, like, my first, like, foray into s screenwriting, and I did a very similar style of, like, towards the end, like, oh, that's that's another, you know, adventure for another time, story for another time. Like, oh, leave it for the sequel. And I was ripped apart for that. And it's <laughs> nice to see that you can get away with it. Yo, <laughs> you know, no, just, you totally could. You know, no, no I, I really don't think there was a lot of, like, thought put into what that story was. I would be surprised to find out. No, I mean, they I'm may say they had stuff when it all finally is, you know, episode nine's out, but there's there's no way at the time. Yeah, no, that JJ didn't have a clue. That's just not how he operates. He makes a fun movie and he leaves the mystery box for us to implant our own and, theories and, and fun mystery boxes. At, sure. At that. I mean, you know, it, in a lot of ways, not having to, you know, it, I've always I've heard that as like a, a screenwriting tip, too, is that you should know your characters like full stories and full backgrounds and just like who they are and what they've been through and that sort of thing. And, you know, I like that JJ and, and his team have not let that concept hold them back. You know, they've just said, Oh, this is some fun storytelling, not thinking about it too hard. And <laughs> we'll just, we'll just come back to it later. And the coming back to it later has its problems, but certainly in the moment, I mean, that pilot to lost, Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I mean, uh, but I, I do love the quote from uh, our very own atomic robos, Brian Clevenger world building is not writing. Writing is writing. Mm-hmm. So... You can engrave that in stone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
um well yeah i think this this maz thing i mean like it better pay off her being in all three films better have some kind of greater relevance because they're supporting the the result of that trade dispute oh good (laughs) that union dispute whatever the hell it was It would be very amusing to me to, to find that as it is a very similar hologram cameo with nothing oh, God. attached to it. Uh. I'm just thinking about like Spock in Into Darkness. No, yeah, very Abramsy. Ugh, stop talking. <laughs> I can't handle it. Even better, what if Lupita like and Maz's character jumped to the forefront? What if like that's the next evolution? Is ooh, we really did her wrong in Last Jedi. Let's give like a cool CG character some like limelight and like joins the main part of the resistance if it's fun yeah. great i just I, I i think her part was obviously obviously supposed to be bigger in force awakens and then it got trimmed down and i'm sure she felt kind of ripped off because it's like hey big new star wars movie first time in a long time you're gonna play this great cg character and then we got what we got and then it's like oh you'll have a part in the sequel and it's just glorified cameo exposition dump <laughs> and now it's like, all right, you want to come back for the third one? Well, of course you'd come back for the third one. It's Star Wars, but you're just, contracted. Yeah, I'm just not holding my breath for like amazing character arc. I'm just, you know, I just want to see a fun Star Wars movie. I hope so, though. I hope it is like something of substance because if you're gonna string this character along, gosh, I mean, you might as well, right? I mean, Maz was created as this weird like linchpin for like the entire history of the saga. It, it is weird that there's been very little follow through on that idea. I have a question about the cast that was released, the the names of the cast that was released. Is Gwendolyn Christie part of it? They did not announce Gwendolyn Christie, no. Ooh, could she be dead? <laughs> I, I think that's the safe assumption from Last Jedi, but I am I am enjoying this sort of, this idea that just shows look, up to be look. like dispatched right away. Okay, hold on. Let's do the math real quick. <laughs> Starkiller base blows up. She fell down a trash compactor. What were the mathematical odds of her escaping a giant weaponized planet as it exploded <laughs> into a supernova? Mm-hmm. Well, Ryan Johnson said that he thinks of her as Kenny from South Park. Yeah. So, and and then in the Last Jedi, she just escapes from a giant ship that's just breaking apart in space, and. Yeah, everyone escaped the, the, the Captain the Phasma thing. sequel comic yeah. about how she escaped from. Yeah. Well, they'd have to. Yeah. I think it's easier to escape from the Dreadnought than it is from Starkiller Base, given the situation. Yeah, apparently there's a shuttlecraft just attached to Snoke's throne room for Yeah. And and plus she fell down like a she fell down a loading platform in the hangar. <laughs> so all she's gotta do is climb back up, as opposed to the trash <laughs> compactor in the middle of Starkiller Base. I just want to see her come back, have another fight, doesn't have to be with Finn. And if she falls down another pit, I'm just like, I don't, I'll be like, all right, they really don't like her. Disney actively doesn't like her. They, they actively don't like Gwendolyn Christie. What if Phasma's working for the resistance in the beginning of the movie and then they flash back and she stowed away on Finn and Rose's shuttle and then like escaped with them and followed up, after yeah, them. With them. She's like and the- then we get through flashbacks that like after being a prisoner, like she sort of, you know, eventually her and Finn start to get along. I was, we, we I was that thinking that would be cool. I was thinking more like she's like the queen alien at the end of aliens when she stowed away on the shuttle back to the thing. And after like the, uh, the resistance, like it leaves that, you know, escapes from that base or whatever. 
and before the first order closes in, just like a side panel and she gets kicked open and Phasma's like all burnt and shit and just like coming after him like FN two one eight seven like an unstoppable <laughs> machine. That would be great. And yeah, if they keep her in they, they got her, they keep her in prison. I sure. feel like that's the only way to validate what they've done with the character is to play up that unkillable angle. Yeah. Like that completes the joke. If they're gonna put Maz Kanata in this third and presumably final film for the new series. Yeah. They, I mean, you, you gotta, right? Yeah. But if they were doing that, they'd want to leave that as a surprise, unlike some other things. But we'll get to that in a moment. Another returning face on the cast is, weirdly, Billy Lord, uh, Carrie yeah. Fisher's daughter. Not a surprise that she's here. She's been in the other prior films as an increasingly relevant character, but she's actually name-dropped here Yeah. Uh, as alongside all the big stars. Yeah. It's, it's just sort of a part of the, the Carrie Fisher package. That... They're going to do like motion tracker on Gary, the dog, and like put him on like an alien creature. <laughs> That'd be great. I mean, I would love for Gary Fisher to yeah. be formally um, in the Star in, Wars introduced canon. to the Star Wars canon. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. He should have been the motion capture for the Crystal Foxes. They would have not been so majestic. No, they would. They would have been very <laughs> ugly clunky. pug runs. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, come on. Like, I, I think it would be really appropriate to have like some creature turn around in the obligatory cantina sequence where, like, yeah. and it's got his tongue lolling out. Gary the, Fisher, the yeah, classic Gary Fisher style. Oh, that would be so great. I would applaud. Yeah, non standing ovation. Yeah. <laughs> Billy D. Williams, as we reported ages ago, and many other sources did as well, is at, in fact now fully officially returning as Lando Calrissian. Hooray! Hooray! Question mark. The fact that Billy D. is not getting like some sort of separate announcement, and it is sort of buried into this press release, I I do think our glorified cameo theory is spot on. Which is a pity, but probably you couldn't expect more. But what could you really do with Land of the Character in this story? Like, coming in this late. Yeah. Yeah, you know. exactly. You can't do anything, and they probably shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, because they probably should have done it with the last it, it, Yeah, either, it either started with, with Lando, or, I mean, just it's just going to be... It should have started with Lando. Let's be serious yeah. here. It's, it should have started with him just as much with the rest of them. But... It should have started, literally, the opening shot, Lando Calrissian. Yeah. He's the one who has the maps to Luke. Shit, yeah. <laughs> And then he meets up with Leia, and he's just like, "Oh, Leia, it's been a, you know, it's been such a long time." Hand kisses her, and Han's just like, "Grumble." Like, I mean, as the, what it, what it save it is if this if the scene where Lando's there, he's like, "Hey, where's Han?" And they're like, "Oh yeah, about that." He's like, and then he, like he he like pauses for a moment. He looks sad. He's like, "So Leia's a widow." Oh, God, <laughs> I mean, in one hand, it would save it. <laughs> the other hand, because you think. Is that classic Lando, though? Han, old buddy, old pal. Oh, always oh, dead. Where's Leia? <laughs> like, Leia and Han were split for a while anyway, so I guess it really isn't that bad. If he brought that up, it's like, well, they weren't together anymore. <laughs> if I don't have 30-year statute of limitations on when I can make my move, then what do I do, Chewbacca? <laughs> he should have been in uh, Force Awakens, where first they reveal, you know, when Han's standing by the shuttle waiting for Leia to get off, and there's Leia. And then that's when Lando swoops in, that, that Leia moved in with Lando after the separation. Yes! <laughs> yes! Like, he's been there! Yeah, Leia comes out, and she's like, oh, same jacket. You have that great little moment, same thing with 3PO, everything. And just when they're about to embrace before, he's like, Leia, I saw her. I saw... He could even, do it. even have that moment. Leia, I saw him. I saw our, I saw our son. And she has this serious look and then in the background out of focus in steps lando he's like well well what have we here <laughs> he sees the on <laughs> and that's and that's how you incorporate lando into episode nine is yes. that lando is the is the Second, stepfather yeah 
Yeah. So Kylo has something one to play against. <laughs> Fuck, man. Why? Why not? <laughs> Wooden great. What if when we see Lando, he's got some kind of like, you know, new era of Star Wars uh, droid flesh composite version of L337. Like before Han lost the Falcon, he was able to port L337 into this weird hybrid droid body thing. I don't know. She probably wouldn't want that. No, nah, she wouldn't want. She's all droid's, droid. Droid's yeah. rights. Um, but anyway, so uh, there's also one other announcement that we, we, we would have expected, and that is. Mark Hamill. The yeah. only surprise about it is that they're being so candid about it. Yeah. Mark Hamill is back. Luke Skywalker is a Force ghost. Duh. Not a spoiler. Here it is. <laughs> Press release. It's yeah. just there. Even if they didn't mention it, it's like, dude, come on. Well, <laughs> you'd be surprised. I feel like the internet was full of a lot of like, oh my gosh, is he going to be back? He shaved his beard. He, you know, that means he's not coming back. I mean, oh, a lot gosh. of it. And it just, you know, it seemed like the obvious, you know, especially after the untimely passing of Carrie Fisher, that they would need Mark Hamill to return. Everyone's got to relax. Film. Every Jedi who's died and disappeared has come back. Even Qui-Gon came back, and he didn't even disappear. So there's one other returning original cast member, and this one is is actually a legitimate surprise. It's Carrie Fisher. Yeah, about that. Yeah. They're using previously unreleased footage shot for The Force Awakens. And J.J. Abrams said, Finding a truly satisfying conclusion to the Skywalker saga without her eluded us. We were never going to recast or use a CG character. With the support and blessing from Billy Lord, we have found a way to honor Carrie's legacy and role as Leia in Episode 9 by using unseen footage we shot together in Episode 7. So here's an interesting thing about this Carrie Fisher insertion. Apparently, a little around a year ago, Carrie Fisher's brother, Todd Fisher, said, like outright said, and we didn't, we didn't know this, we didn't cover it, we've, this is the first we're hearing of it. He said that uh, they gave the studio rights to use Carrie's likeness from prior footage. He said it at a film festival. And uh, so actually this announcement happened quite some time ago. We just didn't realize it. It wasn't very heavily covered. For all the random things that Star Wars news sites or even just pop culture news sites picks up as news, like directors that are speculated to be attached to things that they seemingly aren't, this actual news about Carrie Fisher being in episode nine, which is apparently quite old, never broke. <laughs> no, no one ever paid attention to it. And then, actually, I believe after this was said, Matt, didn't Kathleen Kennedy refute it? Is that a thing? Yeah, yeah. Kathleen Kennedy, actually, her quote was that Todd Fisher may have been confused. <laughs> oh, oh. oh. You know, it's funny that now who who's actually confused? <laughs> <laughs> Kathy, that's that's in bad taste, dude. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, you know, it just goes to show you things are changing all the time, you know, and, and it's weird the, the need to get like definitive statements out there. And and that's because press, you know, the media, they're interested. They keep asking. And so and, and fans, too. So eventually stories go away and people barely remember that there was ever a time when Todd Fisher said one thing and Kathleen Kennedy said another. So, But now it's entombed forever in State of the Empire. Yeah. <laughs> and just, you know, nobody knows nothing. It's the old saying. That's nobody right. In- nobody knows nothing. We don't know much about other deleted scenes involving her, except for the stuff that we saw in like the early teaser of like Maz handing off the lightsaber to what it looked like. That that immediately occurred to me until I realized that the lightsaber is currently in two pieces, and I was like, "Oh, are they going to use that?" And then, I mean, they could flashback, I suppose. Yeah, or you just keep the same scene where they speak, but just don't have the lightsaber part. 
I mean, right. you, could, you could do anything. I mean, they've they got CG planets blown up. They can they can make anything happen. <laughs> well, they can use that footage of Leia and put that face on another body. They wouldn't be in that regard making a CGI character or recasting. Sure. The other thought I had was if they use that footage as a kind of like hollow recording or security footage, mm-hmm. and somehow Kylo Ren gets to see it. So, in other words, you use the footage as footage in the Star Wars universe. So like if Kylo Ren's about to swing his cross saber down and kill Rey or something like that inside the resistance base and then, you know, R2 then suddenly plays a hologram and it's of, you know, his mom and it's if it's a candid conversation between her and Han, so you get to see maybe even Han Solo in it where she's like, bring our son back. It was Snoke that turned him. I know there's still good in him. And that, you know, you play that shit on loop and Ben breaks down crying. I'm like, yeah, maybe, you know, could be but we'll have to see if there's any more details that come out. I feel the most telling part of this whole release is that Abrams said, finding a truly satisfying conclusion to the Skywalker saga without her. Yeah. So that is acknowledging that we're still in the Skywalker saga, that that is still what's happening here. Well, Ben Solo is a Skywalker. And then also that it's a truly satisfying conclusion. Yeah. Which just means Ben eventually, like, finding redemption and death and then the Skywalker saga concludes because I think the family line has been wiped out. Or does Disney want to continue on the idea so Kylo Ren sort of becomes Ben at the end but he has a lot of you know he has a lot to repent for so he kind of goes off Racer X style and like disappears into the galaxy to find out who he really is but leaves in in a way where you're like oh he's a good guy this because I just think Disney's gonna want to make more movies. That's the plot to that uh, Tales of the Jedi redemption arc that I mean, that's the exact plot is the Ulic Keldroma goes off like redeemed after doing like unrepentable evil uh, falling to the dark side. And then when they redeem him at the end and he kills his master, goes off by himself. And then they did an arc called Redemption to kind of conclude that saga where a, uh, a young Jedi of like the next generation, like seeks him out like two decades later. Yeah. You know, additional and then, you know, in in training, a new generation finds like true redemption. Yeah. Um, but I I don't know if they'll use Adam Driver in that way. It'd be cool, but I don't think that would happen. So this is Han and Leia's kids from the expanded universe. Is that? No, no. Sorry. This is this is nice old Republic, old Republic era, oh. like 4000 years before a New Hope. Well, I think uh, a repenting Kylo Ren who drops the mantle of Kylo Ren, becomes Ben Solo, and decides to wander the galaxy like Kane and Kung Fu, trying to right wrongs in all the tiny ways, but also like be an old hermit, you know, kind of guy. The the comic book adventures of emo Jedi Ben Solo would be pretty cool <laughs> if done if done properly. Yeah. The only problem now like he is top dog evil you know, yeah. in this current galaxy state. So I don't see a situation, you know, you can make, you know, second in command evil, you know, kind of redeemed in action by, you know, killing off the greater source of, which I guess technically he has, but, you know, we, we have yet to see him do, to do with that. Well, since he killed Snoke, we have yet to see him do anything else really evil other than try to kill Luke and the Resistance, but they got away. The uh, leaked early draft of the Trevorrow era, or at least what we suppose to be that, I mean, did did paint a picture of the galaxy regarding the First Order with a kind of benevolence. Yeah. An oppressive benevolence all the same. But It, it would be interesting 
if they decided to go into it, but Star Wars has always been kind of black and white, you know? Like, it would be really strange for... Especially, okay, in this day and age, do they really want to take... Is J.J. going to really take the First Order, which was designed intentionally, more so than any other Star Wars villains ever before, to be fascistic in, like, every imagery that they have, to be completely like the Nazis? Are we going to take those people and say... Hey, remember these people who are more Nazis than even the Empire was? Maybe they're not so bad, you guys. I sincerely hope not. Yeah, I think that'd be a terrible move. But while I agree, I don't think JJ is someone to do that sort of thing. His writing partner, Chris Terrio, I absolutely believe is that kind of person, When especially when you look at his uh, DC work. And it's a lot of for better or worse, you know, finding weird explanations for why Luther is the way he is and that there's darkness in Superman and and, and all these like weird things that that Snyderverse <laughs> tried too hard to do. So, yeah, I think he is capable of that. Capable, but will they? And I, I, I don't I, I think that's too big of a risk for Disney in this day and age or for any day and age, really. The movie could pose the question and then say no. Yeah. By the end. Well, we do have some new faces here. There's Naomi Aki, who I've never heard of. She's doesn't have an abundance of things in her IMDb repertoire. She was a character in the TV miniseries The Five, a supporting role in the film Lady Macbeth, and a one-off character in a 2015 Doctor Who episode, Face the Raven. No idea who she's playing. I, I gotta say, Force Awakens' probably strongest characteristic was a great job on casting unknowns or, or newcomers, I guess, because not necessarily, you know, Boyega and... Oscar Isaac and them certainly weren't unknowns, but you know they were up and coming at the time. And the casting, I think they knocked it out of the park for that movie. So a lot of the same people in place, this could be also a great new person. But notably, Carrie Russell is not among them. We have every reason to believe that she was being heavily considered for something, as we discussed in our prior episodes. Whoa, whoa. So, so I'm looking at Variety now, and apparently Carrie Russell's deal wasn't done yet. And... I guess like now going back to the StarWars.com, she's actually been added to the press release. <laughs> so I guess we can Wait, say that seriously, the like done. Like okay, okay, what that doesn't make that's that's insane. Wouldn't they check that before they published it originally? It, it came out late Friday afternoon, and then maybe three hours later, four hours later. What the yeah, fuck? Yeah, we're slighter late Friday afternoon, <laughs> at least on the West Coast. How odd! This, they must have just not done their homework. I mean, I know getting press releases out on a certain time, especially for like big kind of fan heavy movies. Friday is a good day to get that sort of release out. So maybe they're just like, we got to get this out for the weekend so people can talk about it. And then someone's like, hey, did you remember to add Carrie Russell? No. Was she officially confirmed? Yeah. Well, no one told me. Well, shit, put it out on the thing. Yeah, that's probably what it is. It's probably a publicist in the department was not told. Nobody knows nothing. (laughs) I told you. Gary Fisher. Gary Fisher is going to be added an hour from now. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great if they just kept adding new names every yeah, like, every four every hours? hour? That's it's almost like the draft. You know, like, it, just, it just keeps coming out. Like <laughs> that's how you break the news. Apparently, it was included in today's Star Wars show. So they produced Star Wars show earlier in the week, I imagine. So they must have known about Carrie Russell then. It's a slip up. Someone just slipped up. Wild. That's so funny. The one new casting announcement that was leaked. Yeah, the, <laughs> that's ridiculous. <laughs> We've got another announcement, and that is Richard E. Grant, who is a very venerable actor. He was with Nail and with Nail and I. He was in Bram Stoker's Dracula. He was in Logan. And much like many of his recent Star Wars counterparts, he is an alumni of Game of Thrones. I suspect 
he's as a older white guy going to be playing some kind of first order dude. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine that they need a elderly dude to be in the resistance at this juncture. I think that they're probably going to lean heavily into Poe leading the resistance unless there's like another competitor a la Haldo. But I assume that maybe there's some political schisms in the First Order. How could there not be with the deranged child Kylo Ren running the show? You know a great way to get a lot of uh, fans happy by casting another uh, Game of Thrones actor? Hmm. Julian Glover as General Veers. That would be hella dope. That would be... (laughs) Doug, congratulations. I don't know if we need to create a new segment for that, but that would be the dopest shit. Yeah, just (laughs) just, uh, feel free, Disney. He's like just one of the high people in the First Order, you know? Why not? Or like he's like defending a planet that's like his home turf or something, and he's like, no, like, in the Empire we sought to bring order. This is pure fascism. We must cripple it (laughs) with my new and improved Imperial Walkers. (laughs) It's like, oh, I see you're using the Veers formation. Who the hell are you, old man? (laughs) I'm General Veers. You know, I'd love to see Wedge come back, but I'd love to see Veers come back even more. That Mm -hmm. would be just crazy. That would be so fucking crazy. And then a, a whole constituent of the theater would freak the fuck out. And, and everyone, everyone else, else who the hell's that old guy? What the Oh, fuck? is that the guy from Game of Thrones? <laughs> <laughs> no, he's from Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. Not surprisingly, John Williams is back doing the score for one last time. The producers are the same old faces. Kathleen Kennedy, J.J. Abrams, Michelle Ridgewan, uh, Jason McGatlin. Except they've added Callum Green as an executive producer, which is interesting at this late juncture and his production credits also like he hasn't been in a producer executive producer role for a great many films at least on record films but he was executive producer of pacific rim and also crimson peak so he's got a guillermo del toro affinity we've also got rick carter and kevin jenkins as co-production designers and matt you had a very interesting observation about kevin jenkins yeah kevin jenkins i believe is his first production design role which you know is not obviously you know new people have to step up all the time and he's former art director specifically visual effects art director for lucasfilm or i think for ilm actually but i think what's significant is is it's not just you know kevin jenkins is being bumped up from art director production designer it's co-production designer with like such a known and respected entity like rick carter i mean rick carter could definitely production design a star wars movie on his own so i think it's pretty you know that's a that's a weird uh bump i don't know if it's a if it's a mentoring thing that kevin jenkins is sort of seen as the next like you know big production designer over at lucasfilm you know that's that's a very interesting you expect rick carter to be doing it by himself right yeah that it's especially at this you know at this juncture there's plenty of people like because he's not even a bad robot person like this there's no right it just happened and that resolves all of the episode nine announcements. So production's going to be underway. And as soon as we start seeing photos trickle in from parts unknown or any kind of leaks about what's to come, well, we will shut them firmly behind our blast doors, but we will certainly be reporting them here on State of the Empire. Now, we have the hottest news coming out of Comic-Con that we could not predict at all. Clone Wars is coming back. Yeah. You didn't see that coming. No. <laughs> not at all yeah I, I mean it seemed like the series was just simply you know left for dead yeah and they'd done a great job of you know covering their bases they had 
a novel based on abandoned scripts. They had a comic book based on abandoned scripts. They Rebels were... is a spiritual successor. Yeah. 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 There was no, I mean, there was no need for it, but allegedly due almost entirely to fan demand. Allegedly. Allegedly. The series is back. It's 12 all new episodes on Disney's to be named direct to consumer streaming service, which I don't, do we have a, is that later this year? Is it next year? That's debuting. Do they? It's fuzzy. They I don't, don't know. even know. I guess probably not. Um, there's a great trailer. You'll see the entire voice cast is back. Hmm. And one thing they haven't said is they haven't said that Clone Wars is concluding. They've said it's coming back. So if it proceeds in the same style as the rest of the series, these twelve episodes could potentially embody four new story arcs. Um, presumably they wouldn't bother to finish the ones that were released in animatic form. Um, maybe, just maybe, this is actually season one of a new, you know, take on it. Or perhaps, and I think this is the better option, they will actually make an effort to conclude it with these 12 episodes. If I had to put money on it, I would say they're going to try to conclude it with these 12 episodes. And if it became this mega hit of everybody being excited for it, they might order another season. But I, I think 12 episodes being the ender is uh, likely. Yeah, and and they're so close to butting right up against Revenge of the Sith by this point. It, it'd be weird to go back. But there was a lot more to cover. For example, some of the stuff that didn't get made was uh, Ahsoka going to 1313 and being a, you know, a rogue person out, out in right. the lamb. Mm-hmm. However, in this trailer, we see Ahsoka and Anakin yeah. like seeing each other again yeah um which might imply that we've had a the time jump that period has been skipped over and maybe will be covered in some expanded universe content or something and this is even closer feloni has said before that the siege of mandalore and also kind of backed up by the flashbacks that are in the ahsoka novel like ahsoka came back to participate in the siege of mandalore so i imagine her contacting anakin by hologram is them coming to terms on like, okay, let's work together on the Siege of Mandalore. So Siege of Mandalore occurs literally days before Revenge of the Sith. So they're really up against it. Do you think we're going to see like uh, Baby Sabine, Baby Hera? Like, are they going to Easter egg that in there? <laughs> I hope so. Or maybe like a young um, Caleb Doom. Now, that would be cool. Now, whereas, you know, Clone Wars is coming back sometime, we know for a fact that Star Wars Resistance is coming this October. Uh, It will be the ongoing new television show on the block, and we have a little bit of a taste of what's to come via the Twitter German Jedi, who's the, uh, the guy who runs the German Star Wars website, Jedi Bibliothek. We have a plot synopsis for what appears to be the first episode of Star Wars Resistance as written on... Uh, Disney uh, Disney Germany website or something, um, all mentions of this, including this tweet, have since been deleted. But here's what we have. Resistance fighter pilot Poe Dameron tasks young pilot Kazuda Kaziono with spying on the First Order. At the time, little was known about the secretive organization and its strength. In order to fulfill his mission, Kaz travels to the space station Colossus, which is being used by many ships as a port to refuel and do repairs. However, there are also dangerous space races taking place there. After Kaz brags about his piloting skills upon his arrival, he's soon drawn into one of the races. So one thing, the big takeaway for me here is that <laughs> prior to this, then we were talking about Kazuda's Yono. I was like, Kazuda, what the, that's not a particularly marketable name, but he's Kaz. It's Kaz. So that makes sense. 
that's got a little bit of zip to it. Um, also, it's this is an interesting situation they've described, and there might be a little bit more to it, but we have adult fighter pilot Poe Dameron tasking a child with spying on the First Order at a space station that's completely, one would presume, like outside of the protection of the Resistance. Um, this is like... I thought I thought bad decisions were part of his character now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seemingly. This is him, like, cultivating the development of, say, like a young Cassian Andor, you know, a child killer, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they would literally become terrorists. <laughs> like, all right, we have child soldiers now. The First Order will never suspect. I mean, the First Order's got their own kid soldiers, too, now I think about it. Wow. What a terrible place to live, the Star Wars universe. (laughs) (laughs) Now let's talk about something that we don't think we'd expected to talk about anytime soon. Again, it's Solo. Remember Solo? Yeah. Our our favorite Star Wars movie of the new era. (laughs) (laughs) What about it? Well, uh, it hits Blu-ray in September, which is actually kind of an unusually long gap for for some films. Um, And... There's special features on this Blu-ray, including things like a director and cast roundtable in which Ron Howard and the stars have a, quote, intimate and entertaining discussion of the film's making. Because they couldn't use any of the behind-the-scenes footage they shot <laughs> with, with Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Like, that's probably the stuff that would have normally been on the Blu-ray I release. mean, will this be an... How intimate a discussion will this be? Will it be so intimate as to be... To, they can be frank no. about the process of... No, it's going to be, oh, it was so wonderful. There were no problems. Everything... It was a joy to work with starting day one. Uh, we also have a bes- behind-the-scenes breakdowns of all the film's best action sequences and also Welcome to Fort Yipso, which uh, should be, I hope, a heck of a creature featurette. That's my, like, you know, my favorite part of the Star Wars documentaries are when they talk about the exceptional creature design. Mm. Um, but most importantly, we got deleted scenes. They are as such. Proxima's Den, Corellian Foot Chase, which is the, I guess, the, the opening sequence that we saw pieces of in the trailer that mm-hmm. I really would love to see more of. Han Solo, Imperial Cadet. The Battle of Mimban Extended. Han versus Chewie Extended, which is mm-hmm. cool. Snowball Fight. Meet Dryden Extended. So more of that awesome swing and pad of his. <laughs> and Coaxium Double Cross, mm-hmm. which I don't know. I'd see an extended cut of this movie. Hell yeah. What's more, you can read an extended cut of this movie because on September 4th, we're getting a novelization of Solo by Mir Lafferty, and it's another quote-unquote expanded edition, which is what they've been calling all of their novelizations so like in, in recent history. Hmm. And I, I think it's interesting because, you know, in, in many, oftentimes novels are somewhat expanded if they're really given license to let the authors, you know, build out characters you know, narrations and thoughts and so on. Um, but the Star Wars market is particularly uh, a good one to, ex- you know, show that, yes, you might have already seen the film, but if you buy this, you will get more, and continuity is important, so enjoy. Which is, you know, that's actually kind of cool. I think it's a good way for them to maintain sales despite the novelizations coming later than they normally do. Because Star Wars has always been very on top of the novelizations sometimes being out a month before the movie. Phantom mm-hmm. Menace was out in April. So everyone was upset about Qui-Gon's death from the soundtrack, but I already knew about it from the novel. <laughs> you know, they need to highlight that they are expanded in the fact that like they're taking an extra couple months because these movies are changing up to, you know, 
their release almost. Yeah, movie comes out in May, novelization comes out next in September, but hey, it's expanded. And also we didn't know what the movie was going to look like, so of course we couldn't commission the novelization. And I'm I'm there's a lot I'm I feel like I'm spewing a lot of snark this episode. <laughs> it's a it's a dirty industry, folks. Can we all just agree that as much as we love it, it's it's a, a dirty and sordid place. <laughs> Wretched Hive of Scum and Villainy. That's, that's exactly right. Um, so this expanded edition will feature Kira's backstory, Han's time in the Imperial Navy, and the beginnings of the Rebellion, which is actually the most surprising thing I could think would be there. I guess. <laughs> it's like everyone's got to tie into everything one way or another. Uh, I mean, I, I, I imagine that's just kind of some seeds from Emphasis' rebellious group. I, I hope they don't talk about any sort of alliance of them i think that's a big deal for rebels to sort of introduce the idea of a rebel alliance right but yeah if especially if there's like an epilogue that talks more about what infus is doing after all this then sure yeah that makes sense for comic books moving over into october october is going to be a very spooky month for star wars comics there'll be the um uh darth vader issues surrounding vader getting his castle built or um however that's going down mm -hmm. but there's actually a five week event coming out from idw and their all ages star wars adventure series it's star wars tales from vader's castle Ooh. and it's written by the adventures of wild space author Kevin scott sounds like almost like reminds me of the galaxy of fear stuff tales from vader's castle <laughs> It sounds pretty wild. He says, you know how you get those spooky Halloween stories where a car breaks down and there's a creepy castle on a hill? Well, imagine a spaceship landing on a lava planet and the only place is this castle on a hill. <laughs> Unluckiest people in the galaxy. Yeah, just don't fly that close to Mustafar. Ever. Yeah. Why would you ever? <laughs> well, and in fact, um, the series has that as a framing device. There is a rebel ship that crashes on Mustafar not far from Vader's fortress. And the crew survives monsters and stormtroopers. And while they're doing this, they're telling each other stories. What's interesting is, is that... Uh, is this a novelization of Secrets of the Empire? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> but Kevin Scott is actually carving out his own little pocket corner of the Star Wars universe that no one else can touch. And that's everything spinning out of his wild space, like, young reader series. Because there's the backup, issue, the backup stories that he writes in the Star Wars adventure series featuring like the grandchild of his characters from that series. And in this, the, the rebel team that crashes is led by Lena Graff from adventures in wild space. That's awesome. Lena is now a full member of the rebel Alliance and is trying to get her people off of Mustafar. Um, before their, as, as it, as the press release reads before the horror stories they've been sharing become frighteningly real. Hmm. But here's here's what's fun about this because these this is an anthology book essentially. I mean, not written by different people, but the stories are coming from different eras. Um, every single issue features a different cast of characters as the starring characters. Hmm. Issue one is Hera, Kanan, and Chopper. Issue two is Obi Wan and Dooku. Issue three is Young Han, Chewie, and well, and this is me going off of the cover, by the way. So. Issue three is Young Han, Chewie, and a whole mess of owls. Okay. Pretty ominous in the Star Wars universe. And issue four appears to be a whole mess of mind-controlled Ewoks being controlled by some kind of Duloc. And there's, like, maybe the princess or maybe some other Ewok is, like, bracing themselves as this whole horde of 
mind-controlled friends with piercing red eyes are weird bearing down and then issue five has a way cool cover all the covers are by the incredible francesco francavilla uh but there's no indication as to what it's about it's just a kick-ass portrait of vader and his fortress now something we do have to go off on is that uh i believe kevin scott is a a brit say hello to a new era of mental health care Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. And grew up watching... Christopher Lee do his thing on spooky television shows. Mm-hmm. So this Obi-Wan Dooku story is somehow a vampire story. Oh, that's 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 great. Yeah. That's terrific. Playing off of Dooku's other famous role as a count. Of course. Yeah, yeah. But he also said that there's a possession story, which I assume is the Ewoks, a witch story, and a monster story. And I don't know where those other things go. Um, and also, that's only that's what that would be thin again. Four things, and we still don't know what the fifth one is. Uh, with with Vader on the cover, it might just be how the frame story concludes. Could be, yeah. But uh, I am very excited, and I would also really like if, in fact, the Ewok story ended up being the witch story. If you know what I mean. Yes, mm-hmm. I know what you mean. No, get excited about this, Doug. <laughs> the Ewok films are awesome. I haven't seen them as an adult. I'll say that. We do have to do a marathon and I'll 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 give it a fair shake. But I'm not uh I'm 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 not expecting much, to put it politely. Fuck you. <laughs> to put it in politely. So before we proceed and we uncork the rest of our Lucasfilm adventure, thank you so much for tuning in to State of the Empire. We are obviously a part of the Consequence Podcast Network, but we are recorded in Nerdy Show's illustrious, super fancy studios in Winter Park, Florida. And uh, that particular enterprise is entirely listener-supported. So if you enjoy this show or perhaps any of the other shows on the Nerdy Show Network, you should consider donating even a dollar at patreon.com slash nerdyshow. That keeps the lights on here in the place where we record State of the Empire. It's critically important, and if you do that, you'll get a bunch of State of the Empire perks, even more at $5. Ooh. Um, You can support us as well as well. You can support Nerdy Show also by shopping via our Amazon links, perhaps checking out the Star Wars merchandise that we will inevitably link to on this episode's page, like perhaps pre-ordering the Han Solo Blu-ray or novel. And if you want to give a big, big, warm, Wookiee-esque hug to State of the Empire, you should definitely consider rating or reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. 
Um, we need your help when it comes to getting the word out about this one Star Wars show in a total, in a, in a full galaxy of Star Wars shows. If you like us the best, please do leave a rating, leave a review, and we'll read it on the show in the future. Let, uh, give us something to read. Even send a, send a tweet to us. I don't know. Reach out. We, we miss hearing directly from you, and uh, it would be nice. Of course, you can interface with us directly on the Star Wars Spoilers Facebook group. That's where we go for all the, uh, the deep, dark stuff that you don't want to share with your friends. And uh, then we also have the General Purpose State of the Empire Facebook page. Oh, but hey, Twitter. So in past episodes, we've been lamenting, ah, well, for some reason, Willow Watch on Twitter is uh, this fan page for Will Smith's daughter. Uh, well, we have changed our Twitter URL. It is no longer Willow Watch underscore. It is now, thanks to the ingenuity of Doug. What is it, Doug? At Lucasfilm Pod, as in Lucasfilm Podcast. So if you've uh, if you've already subscribed to us, then great, it probably changed automatically. Mm-hmm, it should have. Uh, but uh, but if you haven't yet, search Lucasfilm Pod, and you will find us everywhere. I also changed the Instagram as well. What's a Lucasfilm Pod? <laughs> some young kid comes across a film canister. <laughs> it's like this, some sort of Lucasfilm Pod. <laughs> it's like a Tide Pod, but for film. You folks ready for Willow Watch? Willow. So I was browsing eBay as I am wont to do, looking for that rare Willow shit. And I found some cool stuff. I found the uh, the Mad Mardigan poster that I've seen heavily advertised on a number of like buy this Willow merch kind of sheets mm-hmm. and so on, like or in old issues of Lucasfilm Fan Club. I also even found the uh, the Willow poster book. All of these things were quite expensive. Otherwise, they'd be adorning the walls of our studio right now. For sure. Um, but I did find when I typed in the the keywords Willow. Uh, Lucasfilm and Rare, I found something that I had never seen before and had no idea it existed. And that is a novelization of Willow from the UK. Not the novelization that we've discussed here on the show by Waylon Drew. Not the, you know, the Willow novelization, the thing that's cited time and time again as the Willow novelization. Yeah. But apparently a UK book by Joan D. Vinge. And uh, I ordered it. How could I not? Got it in the mail, and I found out the reason that we've never heard of this is not just because it's from the UK, but because, as you can tell by the font size here, this is a young reader novel. It's for the young bobbins in your household. Yes, (laughs) exactly. So I did flip through it so far. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, and I can verify the fish scene is in it. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. We know that Waylon Drew's novel was the basis for a lot of the expanded universe. From what we've learned in recent time, there's the script, then there's the novel, and then there's the source book. And that is the sequence of events. So this, if we're looking at a Willow multiverse based on the different ways that people have adapted things, this could be a third fork in the path. You know, after the film, either comes source book material, like there's that world, and then there's the Chris Claremont, George Lucas novels that follows the film as we know it, and then maybe there's also this young reader version that could potentially showcase uh, contrary points to what we know or think we know. Flipping through it very quickly, everything seems pretty on point, even most of the dialogue lifted straight from what is presumably the script. A little bit of background on Joan D. Vinge. 
even though this is seemingly a exclusively UK adaptation, she's an American science fiction author. She's the author of the Hugo Award-winning 1980 uh, novel The Snow Queen. But she's also had a hand in youth adaptations of science fiction films we know and love, including one I grew up reading, Star Wars Return of the Jedi, the storybook based on the movie. This is largely a picture book using stills from the film, but I I grew up reading that book. She also did early reader adaptations of, of all things, Dune, or what was called the the Dune storybook, Return to Oz, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and Ladyhawk. Wow, that's a lot. Some of those might actually be actual adult level novelizations. It's a little bit. Yeah. Can't imagine like the junior novelization of Lady Hawk. <laughs> I mean, maybe. Maybe. Sure. <laughs> anyway, we'll have more Willow discussions and news and interviews forthcoming later on as the uh, 30th anniversary year of Willow continues. But for now, thus ends Willow Watch. And thus begins Indie Inquiry. Doug, in past episodes, you have regaled us with some unusual tales of Indiana Jones scripts. Yes. I'd like to start with a redaction. What? Don't get too excited. (laughs) Last time when I was discussing Indiana Jones and the Monkey King, uh, the screenplay by Chris Columbus, I, uh, in passing, said that it ended with Indiana Jones and the love interest getting married. That's not true. It actually ends with Indiana Jones getting back on a boat to head for America with the golden hooped staff of Sun Wu, the Monkey King, and Claire, the main love interest, decides to stay in Africa to research the hidden city that they found, and Betsy, the annoying sidekick, decides to stay with Claire, and they're going to be buddies. So in a weird twist that's completely opposite of most Indiana Jones movies, he doesn't get any girl, but he gets the artifact. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So no wonder it didn't feel like an Indiana Jones movie. But yeah, so that just had to make sure that that was clear. When I said that uh, that Indy gets married, I was thinking of this next one that I wanted to discuss, which the next script would be Indiana Jones and the Saucerman from Mars. But you got to keep in mind, Indiana, Indi- hold on. Indiana Jones and the Saucerman from Mars. The Saucerman from Mars. Now, I know that title, but yes. it's safe to assume that probably a lot of people have not heard that title. Lucas has talked about it publicly before, especially with the Crystal Skull uh, bonus features and stuff. He says one of the early drafts they called Saucerman from Mars. And... This is that version. And I remember in like 2007-ish, before Crystal Skull was announced and there were rumors of aliens being involved, I was like, nah, no way they're doing aliens. And then like the rumors came out, there's a script called Saucerman from Mars. And I scoured the internet trying to find it. And I found other fan-related scripts that were all really terrible. Um, but there was the rumor of Saucerman from Mars and a couple scenes that were supposedly in it. And weird enough, those rumored scenes, about half of them were completely accurate and the other half were completely false. So I don't know how it all got jumbled up. But yes, Indiana Jones and the Saucerman from Mars was written in 1995 and sort of sets the groundwork for what would become Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. But to put this in the right mindset, to give you a sense of the time of what was going on around it, um, I'd like to give you a brief recap of what happened after Indiana Jones and the Monkey King. So in the real world. In the real world, yeah. In the real world, they decide, okay, we're not going to do Monkey King because that's way too crazy. It's way too expensive. Magic. Can't do it. They eventually got Jeffrey Bohm to write Last Crusade. Before he did Last Crusade, Jeffrey Bohm did an uncredited uh, rewrite of Lethal Weapon in 1987. So he did that action-y kind of thing. The next thing that he worked on was uh, he wrote the screenplay for Inner Space, huh. which was directed by Joe Dante. Joe, Ta- Joe Dante also directed Gremlins, which was written by Chris Columbus. <laughs> so it's kind of a small world kind of thing happening. Mm-hmm. Can you name some of the producers on Inner Space? Uh, Kathleen Kennedy. And Steven Spielberg and Frank Marshall. Mm. <laughs> so, so of course, there. Great, of course. Jeffrey Bohm also wrote The Lost Boys, 
and Lethal Weapon 2. So, uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. So pretty good choice. And, and as we all know, Last Crusade, it's a pretty great movie. <laughs> you know, so good job. <laughs> good selection. Can I divert? Oh, please. Go ahead. If you'd like to see Last Crusade presented in startling 70 millimeter, then you need to get your ass to Chicago this September. Oh, really? Yeah. The Music Box Theater, which has recently played host to Consequence Podcast Network's Castle Rock Celebration, hosted by Losers Club, our Stephen King podcast, they just did that this past weekend. They have a 70 millimeter film festival, an annual event that they do in September. This is happening September 14th through 27th, where they've got 12 films, among which is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, a 70 millimeter blow up with magnetic sound. I don't know what magnetic sound is, but I guess it must be good. Otherwise, they wouldn't have mentioned it. Analog, I guess. Yeah, or like, like so it's it's like, it's as original as it gets. This is untainted, Man, perhaps. I'd love to go see that. Well, in addition to that, this is going to be a hell of a time. Get yourself an Airbnb in Chicago. They're also going to have Lawrence Kasdan Silverado. Oh, shit. Like a, like a double feature? I mean, this is a film festival happening between the 14th and the 27th. Is that going to be in 70 millimeters? Is that just like regular? All this is 70 millimeters. This Damn. is a 70 millimeter film festival, Doug. Oh, shit. Okay. Oh, man. <laughs> you got to get oh, tickets to Chicago? I don't have the money. <laughs> Also, are you ready for this, Doug? No. The thing. No. <laughs> oh man. Oh, why do you gotta tell me this when I can't? I don't have the money or the time to go. And a brand new Christopher Nolan supervised seventy millimeter print 2001. of two thousand one, a Space oh, Odyssey, uh, and the Dark Crystal, uh, and stop. <laughs> a brand new print of Lawrence of Arabia. Fuck. What? Do you, why? Why? And, and those are just the things I thought you'd care about. Because also there's Patton, Star Trek uh, Six, uh, West Side I, Story. I, I love Star Trek Six. <laughs> Year of the Dragon, Remains of the Day, and The Sound of Music. Sound of Music, fine. West Side Story, fantastic. Come on. Yep. Dude, 2001 is going to be sold the fuck out. That's already done. There's no way. No one's getting it. I don't one. know. Head to the Music Box's website. We'll link to it on this episode's page. Come see it. They're great people. Oh. And now the timeline is complete. Indiana Jones... Yeah, uh, came moving out. on. Okay, <laughs> yeah. So Last Crusade happened, and it was amazing, and Doug's not going to get to see it uh, on 70 millimeter. <sighs> okay, so um, this draft, Indiana Jones and the Saucerman from Mars, was written in, uh, well, the draft I read was uh, finished on February 20th, 1995, written by Jeb Stewart. That name may not sound really familiar to most of our listeners, but I can guarantee you're familiar with the work that he's done. Films including Die Hard. Oh. Leviathan. That's from the totally unremarked upon boom of sci-fi films underwater, taking place underwater yeah. in 1989, of which there were at least six. Yeah. Another 48 Hours. They did a sequel to 48 Hours. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What? You never you knew that there was 48 Hours had a sequel? No. It's called Another 48 Hours. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah, everyone returned for it, and it's, it's a silly movie. Is it good? Uh, I haven't seen it since I was very young, but I remember thinking it was funny, but, you know, I was, I was a kid. Okay. <laughs> but here's where it starts to get interesting. 1993, he writes The Fugitive, starring... Mel Gibson. No, Harrison <laughs> Ford. I think it was probably around that time they wanted to start courting him because that movie came out as a huge success. So I'm thinking around 1994 is when they start talking to him because you know what else he wrote in 1994 that released in early 1995? I know you don't know, so I'm just going to tell you. Yeah, please. It's a movie called Just Cause, starring Sean Connery. Lawrence Fishburne, which doesn't really matter in this example, and Kate Capshaw. Oh. Yeah. So I think based on 
based on working with Harrison Ford, Sean Connery, and Kate Capshaw, this is the guy to do the next Indiana Jones movie. And he did Die Hard, so come on. He's, he's got, you know, he's, man's telling and him that right in action. I'm, I'm looking up Just Cause, and I have never even seen the box before. Yep. Anyway, so he writes Indiana Jones and the Saucerman from Mars. And, uh, Yo, Scarlett Johansson's in Just Cause. Oh, really? Yeah. She must have been like two. Yeah, she's like a baby. <laughs> so, Matt, you remember when you were mentioning like, oh, I wonder if they're using any of this stuff for Jungle Cruise, Disney's Jungle Cruise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I didn't mention about Indiana Jones and the Monkey King was that there was a scene involving river pirates. And I think this river pirates thing is mandated by Lucas and or Spielberg because this movie opens with river pirates in Borneo. <laughs> This movie opens on a riverboat in Borneo in 1949. Indy is on like a little steam-powered boat, which is very much like African Queen. He's, they're very much going for the Humphrey Burger African Queen thing. Indy and his partner named Kabul are fending off river pirates as they're attacked by this guy called Baldassare. And he's like demanding like the map to the Golden Idol. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about, pal. Get off my boat. <laughs> um, there's crocodiles in the water and uh, they barely escape. The bad guy thinks he's got this map to treasure and he leaves cackling and Indy and his partner and are like, ah, the partner's like, we've been out here for like three months, Dr. Jones, and we just lost everything. We didn't lose everything, pal. And he should, like opens up his coat and he's got like the golden idol that the bad guy thinks he's going to go get. But Dr. Jones, once he follows that map and sees that the idol's not there, he's going to try to kill you. Yeah, I'll be out of here by then. Who cares? So they pull into like the river port of this town, wherever, and they're like, we're th- because of that pirate attack, we're three days late from picking up Dr. McGregor. Marcus said that you were going to take care of Dr. McGregor and paid for the excursion deep to find that hidden temple. And he's like, I ain't taking nobody out. But then he sees that Dr. McGregor is actually Dr. Elaine McGregor. And she's very beautiful. And she's perfect in every way because she's very caring. And he sees her as Dr. McGregor. And humana, humana. Yeah. The way it's described is he is instantly smitten and struggles to speak when he sees her. <laughs> he's like, hey, Dr. McGregor. Me, Indiana Jones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And he's just like, I mean, granted, he hasn't seen a woman in three months because <laughs> he's been out on the river. Um, but anyway, she's like, oh, Dr. Jones, I see you're injured. Oh, my. And she's taking care of him. And they just they just sort of hit it off like magically. Like, it's too crazy to believe. But it is for real. Like, they do like legit fall in love. And he's like, look, it's too dangerous to go out there on that river to find that temple that you think you're going to find. It doesn't exist. There's no way. And she goes, well, I demand to give it a try. And then just cuts to literally six weeks later. They're like embracing. And, and he's like, I got to be honest. These past six weeks would have been the greatest of my life. And I'm glad I'm glad I've been with you. And she's just like, oh, Dr. Jones, me too. But then the camera pans back and you see that they're upside down, dangling by a rope by their ankles over a pit of ants <laughs> that are about to eat them because Baldessaire caught up with them. And he's like, ah, oh, Dr. Jones, I'm going to get my revenge. I'm going to light a fire under these ropes that's going to burn. When it burns, you're going to fall onto these ants. These are these are huge army ants. So they're going to eat you, you know, in minutes. You know, they're like land piranhas, goodbye forever, and these fire ants just run out, and they're like the size, described as the size of grasshoppers. I think this is another mandated thing that we see in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, obviously, the the crazy ant scene. Yeah, I had actually forgotten about that. I had not thought about it since I saw it in theaters. Thanks for reminding me not. I feel like I, I think of that scene once a day. (laughs) (laughs) That's how tortured my life is. Now, here's the thing. That scene was obviously mandated by George and Spielberg, and they were huge fans of Naked Jungle starring Charlton Heston. And there is a great scene in that movie where ants cross a river 
over like floating twigs and leaves and they just attack this camp and it's a great scene and it like it feels very real like just the way that the ants behave and the way people are reacting to it and like how you think the ants like because they're not like giant massive cartoon ants they're like regular normal sized ants but the way that they silently move in and just start killing people without anyone knowing, it's actually like really compelling. So I can see why they take inspiration from that and put it in this. And like, it's, it's got to, you know, indie-verse it. It's got to be big and, you know, pulpy and whatever. So sure. But it all is in how you handle it. And here they handle it kind of all right. Indy is trying to think of a way to talk himself out of it. And he's like, oh, you may get the maps, but you'll have to have someone translate it. And you'll need both of us. And the bad guy's like, you're right, Dr. Jones. I just need... Elaine McGregor, because she's the translator, you're not. Goodbye, he kidnaps her, leaves him and Indy's partner to die, but they find their way out of it. They swing towards each other, undo each other's wristbands, and then they climb and they can swing away, obviously, whatever. So anyway, Indy chases them on the boat, because it's a riverboat chase, and uh, but it's not like fast, it's really slow moving. And he catches up with him, and they get on the boats, they start fight, 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 fight. You realize this river is going over a waterfall, because of course it is, and they were moving in that direction, I don't know why. But uh, there's a switcheroo. The bad guys get on Indy's boat. Indy gets on the bad guy's boat because he's trying to save his girlfriend. And the waterfall is pulling things over it. And the bad guys are trailing all this treasure that Indy found because they stole it from Indy. And it's going to pull them over the waterfall. But uh, Indy's girlfriend's like, we got to cut it loose. Cut the treasure loose. Let it go over the falls so we can live. And they're like, damn it. She's right. They cut it loose. And they're able to escape. The bad guys, their engine cuts out and they can't make it. So they fall to their death. It cuts to like, you know, several hours later, they're cleaning up and he's just like, Elaine, I love you. Will you marry me? And she goes, yes, cut to the wedding. <laughs> like, uh. <laughs> and this is the beginning of the movie proper. Like that's like your action opening. This is the movie proper begins what? at the, the movie hasn't started yet. This is the now here's the real. Yeah, that's the opening action scene of how they met. The movie begins at the wedding and they're getting ready and there's a cameo from everybody like uh, Sala is there. Henry Jones is there. Marion and Willie Scott are there. Everyone but the Nazis are there, basically. Fun fact, uh, John Rhys-Davies was actually asked to be in King of the Crystal Skull, but it was a small cameo that he declined because he felt the role was too small and dismissive of the character. Good for him, because it would the same thing would have happened with this movie. It's, it's really <laughs> dismissive. He's just there to say, oh, Indy, happy for you. Goodbye. Hey, like th- you think he was destined for the wedding? Oh, you know what? Probably. A lot of stuff in this is going to end up in Crystal Skull, but not in the way you'd expect. Anyway, so moving on. It's the big day. Everyone's getting ready. And Elaine is about to walk down the aisle. The music's playing. And he's up there grinning like a dumbass. And all of a sudden, <laughs> the door opens. Little does he know, he's in the most deadly death trap of all. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> the door opens. Matrimony, this, am this, I right? This strange man runs in, whispers something to Elena. She's obviously mad. Like, I'm about to get married. What's wrong with you? They, stop, they start arguing, argue, argue. No one really hears what they're saying. And then without saying a word to anybody, she gets into a car, speeds away, and he's like, what the hell? Everyone's, like, shocked. And this little chase scene, kind of reminiscent of Crystal Skull, except there's no motorcycle, but it's like a car versus car chase down down Main Street, you know, USA. Mm-hmm. Um, he's trying to figure out, where is my wife going and what's going on? And they escape. But it becomes clear to the audience by the way it happens, but not to Indy, that she kind of isn't being kidnapped. Like, she's running away on purpose. And Indy's like, oh, my gosh, my wife left me at the altar. What's wrong? And oh, my God. And there's like a lot of jokes that Henry Jones is just a fucking wise ass. Like he just makes jokes like every two <laughs> seconds. Cut. To, you know, And then Marion and Willie come up to comfort him. And they're like, Marion's like, I think you need a drink. Cut to them at the bar. Indy's sitting at the bar all depressed. Willie Scott's on one end. Marion's on the other. What the fuck fan fiction I you reading? I know. I'm <laughs> telling you. And they're just saying shit like, oh, Andy, you never understood women. And like they're just bringing up old i remember that scene you remember that scene kind of 
scene. This Jesus is what this is. Christ, the short round there. He's at the end. Oh yeah. So <laughs> anyway, so he's like all depressed, and they're ragging on him for falling in love with a woman that he just met without knowing anything about her past. This is a reoccurring motif that everyone's telling him. So then he goes to her office at the university because she's a professor as well. And he's digging through her stuff. Why? Because he's a creep. I don't know. And he's a weirdo. <laughs> and um, I guess he's just looking for answers. And he sees that, according to the papers, she's actually already married. And the dude she's already married to works for the OSS, like American Intelligence. And there's like a note there saying you need to come to White Sands, New Mexico immediately because it's super urgent. And apparently she ignored that note to, you know, have a wedding. But something pulled her away so he's like fuck it i'm going to new mexico so he goes to new mexico and he pulls into like a 1950s diner which is something that we're kind of going to start to see in other future scripts there's this 1950s atomic diner setting in the desert there he he's like do you know this woman or this man in this photo and the waitress is like yeah he works for the military base that's not far from here and he drives out there and he's just like Knock, knock. Hey, this is Colonel Jones of the OSS, retired. And they're like, sorry, Mr. Jones, it's too dangerous. You can't be here. Goodbye. And he's just like, grumbled. And then he waits and then he sees the military convoy leaving, follows them on horseback, watches them go out to a crash site, a mysterious crash site out in the desert near Roswell. Uh And then they see that he's watching them. They catch him. They bring him in. I'm going to truncate the rest because it goes on for a while. He finds his fiance and her current husband. And they're like, Dr. Jones is very serious. And Elaine's like, "Uh, honey, I didn't want to run away from you. I wouldn't have left it unless it was literally life or death. The nation's security is at risk. I'm sorry I lied to you about being married. I still love you. I still want to marry you. But there's some complications. We have to deal with this shit right now. And then he's like, I saw the crash site. What is it? Some sort of experimental jet that the Russians did or whatever? They're like, no, this is some alien shit. And he's just like, no way. (laughs) Like, he doesn't believe it. And what follows is the best sequence of the entire script. Because it starts with them trying to ease Indy. They're trying to butter him up and get him ready to accept the fact that aliens exist. And he's just not having it. It's the most Indy that Indy behaves of the entire script. Like, completely skeptical. Doesn't buy it for a second. They're like, well, how do you explain this strange metal scraps from the crash? He's like, it's literally anything. <laughs> you know, the, the first thing, you, you see a crash site. You guys see a UFO because you want to see a UFO. I'm not buying it. They're like, what about these bodies? And they open up like these cryogenic tubes that they're preserving the bodies. And he goes, huh, they're, they're burnt pretty bad. They look like apes to me. They look like monkeys. I see them all the time in the jungle. Just, their hair's not on it because it burnt off. Try again. And they're like, fuck. Like, there's nothing they can do to prove to them that make them think that aliens exist. And finally, Elaine's like, show it to him. Show it to him or I leave now and you don't get my help. And they're like, ah, oh, fine. And they pull out this canister that's like a glowing orb of energy that's clearly alien. Like, you just can't deny it. And even Indy can't deny it. And he's like, oh, my gosh. Like, look at the inscriptions on it, Dr. Jones. What do you see? And he's like, Mayan, Egyptian, Sanskrit. There's all these ancient languages are all over this thing. And they're trying to figure out what it is. They think it's some kind of battery. But Indy thinks it might be potentially dangerous if it's cracked open like an atomic bomb. And there's a lot of parallels with atomic energy. And he steps outside to think about things while there's on, they're on a break. And he sees the atomic bomb go off 50 miles away and because they're doing testing nearby with the military base. So you get this image of an atomic bomb, the mushroom cloud, going up at sunrise. And Indy's silhouetted against it, something else we see in Crystal Skull. And the husband is like, oh, the atom is our friend, Dr. Jones. Don't worry about it. Mess- weapons of mass destruction aren't evil. And he's like, yeah, I don't know about that. And now it's got me giving me second thoughts about this battery that we found. Maybe it's best if we just get rid of it. Russians come in and they steal it 
and the military chases them. Indy's among them. They end up in a missile testing area with a rocket sled. Indy fights a guy on the rocket sled. The rocket sled goes off, just like in Crystal Skull, down the track. The wind blowing in their face, and they fall over. And Russians pick up Indy. They throw him in the trunk of a car, just like in Crystal Skull, but out of order. And they're driving through the desert, not really knowing what to do with Dr. Jones, but they got his girlfriend too. The car with the girlfriend goes somewhere else. The car with Indiana Jones goes somewhere else because they're trying to find a way to dump his body or something. They end up in, quote-unquote, Boomtown, the nuclear test town. The Russians don't know this is a fake town, and they get caught up in it. Everything happens like Crystal Skull. The bomb goes off. Indy runs into a fridge. The one thing that's better about this version is that the fridge doesn't go flying a million miles like and, and pass it overtakes a car. The bomb just goes off, and like the house collapses on top of the fridge, and the fridge stays there. And later, it shows the cleanup crew coming in, and they're like, you know, spraying things down in these like radiation suits. And the fridge falls open, and Indy spills. They're like, oh my god, there's a person in here, and then they bring him back. So I think if it happened that way, people would have been less upset about it. Anyway, so after a game of cat and mouse, the military is like, are you part of it with the Russians? And Indy denies it, very much like in Crystal Skull. And they want to arrest him, but he breaks loose. He beats up some American soldiers, steals a car, finds out uh, where the Russians are going. And uh, the Russians have this plan where they're going to land a plane out in the desert, load up this alien artifact, take it back to Moscow with Indy's girlfriend because she can decipher the markings on it. Indy gets on that plane. There's a fight scene on the plane. And while they're fighting on the plane, a flying saucer comes down and tries to beam up the battery, for lack of a better word. There's an interesting action sequence involving the UFO chasing this thing. It ends up crashing. Indy and his girlfriend are running through the desert with this thing. They come across like an old beat-down souvenir store and a scene very reminiscent of War of the Worlds, like Spielberg's War of the Worlds happens, where they're like creeping around this dark abandoned house type thing and there's a weird alien running around and they're avoiding it and it's spooky and stuff and then this they, movie sounds gigantic it sounds yeah how i mean how many pages was it this it's it this was, sounds too big it was a little over two hours i believe if i'm remembering correctly but anyway to wrap it up they escape that place where the alien in a car and they find themselves at a drive-in movie theater so they decide to wait there a lot of 50s nostalgia stuff the ufo comes back pulls them up out of the drive-in movie theater with its tractor beam lands somewhere else they talk to an alien. <laughs> the alien speaks an ancient dialect that was like Sanskrit. Like they can read Sanskrit and understand Sanskrit. So Elaine tries to talk to it. They can't get much more out of the alien other than that the battery is dangerous. U.S. military shows up and this is the finale of the movie where the battery has been counting down the whole time. They don't know to what, but they assume it's something bad. They have to get it to a mountaintop, very reminiscent of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. They get it to the mountaintop. The bad guy, who's really Elaine's husband all along, he was a Russian spy all along, big surprise. They get up to the mountaintop, and he's like, no, I want the power, it's for me. He's like, no, give it back, the aliens want it. Ah, and there's like a struggle over it, and the bad guy, his face melts, and he explodes in, like, as in true Indiana Jones fashion. The aliens get the thing before it explodes, they take away, and the world is saved. And then it ends with uh, Elaine and Dr. Jones getting married, this time for real, and everyone's back for that scene, saying, oh, they're crying so happy, it's so great. And they run outside the church, they get inside the car, and guess who's driving? Short round. Exactly. He's a little bit older, but he's driving. And they drive off to live together happily ever after. It's very strange. The whole thing is very, very strange. But there is a lot of the groundwork for Crystal Skull in this. Yeah, no kidding. And I feel maybe this is just you describing it. It sounds like a better movie than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. It is and it isn't. The humor didn't really do it for me. It didn't feel like Indiana Jones humor. It was very pandering. Granted, this is an early draft. I'm sure in future drafts they would have you know, made it better. A lot of characters were underutilized. Indy 
sometimes acted very much like Indiana Jones, like when he's being skeptical, and then other times he acted very much not like Indiana Jones. This would have been a really great prequel to the X-Files that takes place in the 1960s, if that makes any sense. It's like that was the vibe I was getting. Mm-hmm. A lot of government G-men, U.S. military. Think of it this way. The first 15 minutes of this movie is the opening in, in Borneo. The rest of it takes place on American soil. Uh-huh. So something about it in the desert, like in New Mexico. So something about this is very not Indiana Jones, but sci-fi, But at the UFO. same time, that makes what they were trying to do feel more genuine, at least in this... in in my imagination right now because yes. if you're going to say let's do Indiana Jones but let's make it a send up to the sci-fi of the 1950s yes. this did accomplish that right and because um, that drive-in scene is like that's that's absurd yeah but at least it plays to to that the thing. genre yeah. yeah and I will say to me again the strongest point of this entire screenplay was the sequence where they're trying to convince Indy that aliens exist because here's the trick to that scene they're not convincing Indiana Jones that aliens exist. They're convincing you, the audience, that aliens exist in the Indiana Jones universe. Right. And it does that very well. I don't particularly like the fact that aliens exist in the Indiana Jones universe, but this at least treated it, they waded you into it really slowly and showed you things as proof. And once Indiana Jones was convinced, you're convinced. Crystal Skull, it kind of comes from out of nowhere, and you're not really sure. You're still debating it until the very end, then a UFO shows up. Everything with the romance is really cheesy, but I'm sure it would have gotten better in later drafts. His girlfriend is perfect Mary Sue character. She's female Indiana Jones. It's strange. She doesn't really have much of a personality other than she's wonderful. Everybody loves her. But there are some genuine good moments that, although it's not great for an indie film, would be great in another film. Apparently Spielberg said, no, I'm done with aliens. No more aliens. George, if you send me another thing with a goddamn ghost or a goddamn monkey or a goddamn alien, I'm not interested. <laughs> like, we're done. So uh, for the next draft, which is, I believe, the Frank Darabont one, they're interdimensional beings. And I got to say, for the next Indie Inquiry with Frank Darabont's version, I really like that script. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I very much enjoyed it. So but that's a story for another time. The... Interesting thing is that they were already getting into the 50s nostalgia with Indy in the 90s. To me, that was always something like that had to come about because Harrison was getting older in the, you know, early mid 2000s. But it looks like they were going there much earlier than that. Well, it took place in 1949. I didn't do the Mm -hmm. math and find out how old Harrison Ford would be if like you adjusted like the whatever. But there is a lot of preemptive 1950s references and there's a couple references that Indy makes about feeling like he's getting a little too old for this and everyone's like why don't you settle down and he's like I want to get out of the treasure hunting business like kind of that but not like it's not really heavy-handed but it's it's peppered in throughout there and I guess if you really want to read too much into it you could say Indiana Jones falling in love with this perfect woman and wanting to quit the business was like an excuse to get away from the dangerous stuff he figured married life would get him out of it. So he wanted to marry this girl without knowing anything about her. And in doing so, found himself in another adventure way in over his head. You could take it in that direction. And I think that's what it was going for. It's just first draft. It doesn't really communicate that as, as much. I just have always assumed that it was always out of necessity that they had to go to the 50s and get sort of nostalgic for the yeah. you know atomic age and nuclear family and all that sort of imagery. But it, it appears that they wanted to do that for a long time. Yeah. Uh, a couple takeaways. Clearly, a lot of this ended up in Crystal Skull. The other thing is River Pirates. This has been a reoccurring motif for two scripts now, and we've yet to see a River Pirate in any Indiana Jones movie. So if I was betting money, based on these two scripts that we've talked about so far, I think River Pirates are a distinct possibility for the next Indy movie. But I guess the question is, River Pirates in the 1960s, 
maybe we're going to be looking at actual pirate pirates, perhaps like, you know, in the South Pacific or something. Yes, but it, it, so far it's always been like literal river pirates in Africa. Right. Like, you know, like deep in the jungle. I don't know like what that. that situation was like in the 1960s. It has not know. been chronicled in things that I've read or watched. So yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss there. But I'm sure there's some interesting history happening outside of the United States that I don't know about. Oh, yeah. sure. Uh, hopefully they'll tap into that. George had a plan for seeding this Crystal Skull timeline that was fascinating. If you go to even Wikipedia on the list of Young Indiana Jones episodes, at the very bottom, you'll see a list of about a whole season's worth of unproduced episodes, like 20 or so things. Wow. All with the years that they were taking place in and some with actual descriptions. And it's fascinating. It paints a bigger picture of what the show could have been. Because one of the greatest crimes of Young Indiana Jones Chronicles is that sometimes it was quite boring. Mm -hmm. And that's a shame because Indiana Jones should never be boring. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it was quite boring. Viewership declined. And on top of that, they were generally extraordinarily expensive to make. Yes. But also, there's some amazing moments on there, and it really fleshes out some compelling aspects of Indy's past. Like, for example, the, the sequences that took place in World War I, his relationship with the character Remy. The treasure quests that would really inspire Indy to become who he becomes ranging from when he's a young child to then later as a young adult. Like the peacock's eye. Exactly, which is a plot line that never fully resolved. They did kind of resolve in the Indiana Jones uh, journal that you can buy. Uh-huh. Uh, inside, there's a note from a grown-up short round saying he finally found the peacock's eye. Wow. And he's like, I did what you couldn't do, buddy. <laughs> like, That's cool. And I'm like, I want that comic so freaking bad. <laughs> like, adult short round, it sounds awesome. There's an episode that takes place, Bombay, April 1919, was to involve Indy meeting Gandhi on his way back from his search for the eye of the peacock diamond while Remy is still searching for the diamond. Remy and Indy fight about continuing the treasure search. Mm. Interesting. Character development, so on and so forth. Well... Some of the last episodes in this timeline, what I assume would have been towards like season ender or something, Honduras, December 1920. Indy meets Belloc for the first time. Ooh. They become friends. Belloc steals a crystal skull and sells it. Nice. And then Belloc becomes, in one of the remaining episodes of what's here, a reoccurring character when he and Indy search for a lost city in Brazil. When is that stuff dated? When did this happen? The yeah. series was canceled in 93. That thing with Belloc stealing a crystal skull may have been, nothing goes to waste, uh, recycled into the subplot of the Max McCoy Indiana Jones novels because there is a crystal skull connecting thread and Belloc wants it, Indy wants it, Belloc steals it from Indy, it changes hands a few times. Sounds similar enough. True. So I'm curious. Well, here's a little bit of archaeological exploration from the internet in regards to where this information came from because I was kind of, I was curious because I've always wondered like you know how did this get out this is awfully specific and very weird and they don't tend to like you know just tell you stuff like this well according to the website indiefan.com which is what wikipedia cites these were given these these synopses were given to this website by Laird Malamed who was working as a uh, assistant sound editor throughout Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. And here's a little fun fact about Laird Malamed. Laird Malamed is the founding chief operating officer of Oculus and also a contributor to IndieCast. As far as I know, is the number one Indiana Jones podcast on the web. Yes. Okay, well, thus ends Indie Inquiry. And thus ends State of the Empire. We'll be back in another two weeks with an all-new episode. 
Look forward to more Willow Watch specials coming throughout the year, more explorations of indie scripts, thanks to uh, Doug's exhaustive research. Find us on Facebook, on the Star Wars Spoilers Facebook group, if you want to venture into a Sarlacc pit of information. And you can find me at Cat Blackard. I'm at Doug V. Banks. And I'm at Matthew Spill. And we're all at Lucasfilm Pod. State of the Empire is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcast programming at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded and produced in Orlando, Florida at Nerdy Show Studios, home of the Nerdy Show Network, geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. Discover more at nerdyshow.com. Our theme song, Maximum Rebo, was written and performed by Zantilla. Find more awesome tracks at zantilla.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to our Bothan pals in the Star Wars Spoilers Facebook group, the Nerdy Show Network Patreon backers, and Constable Zuvio, the toughest lawman in the rim. You think it's easy keeping the peace in an armpit like Nima Outpost? It ain't. It's warmer than a target peg and dusty as a bargain bin. But in an unjust galaxy where your screen time can get snatched in the blink of an eye, the constable's out there, an unseen and unsung hero, but a hero all the same. Don't just see Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Be Indiana Jones and take on six new adventures. Call 1-900-990-INDY on your touchstone phone to play the Indiana Jones telephone adventure game. Every caller can write in for a great Indy photo certificate. It's only $2.50 a call. Kids, check with your parents before calling. You call this archaeology? Take on the challenge and don't miss Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Ready PG-13. Starts Wednesday, May 24th at theaters everywhere. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.